Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and every week the team and I will be bringing you an exciting mixture of discussion, interviews and stories. This week we discuss our Ed the Unready cover story with Raphael Baer, who has been canvassing views about the Labour leader from the left. While Caroline Crampton and Philip Moore debate the rights and wrongs of 3D cinema, Alex Hearn and I dissect the launch of the new Xbox and Playstations, and our art critic slash deputy chief sub-editor, Tom Calvert-Caressi, brings us news of two exhibitions at the London Tates. joined by Caroline Crampton, our web editor, and Raphael Baer, our political editor, to talk about the week in politics. Um, Raph, you first. You've written the cover story this week about um, Ed Miliband and his relationship with Labour. Basically, what's what's happening? Well, the, the question that I, I sort of set out to answer is, uh, given that actually the numbers point to Labour forming a government at the next election. And so they've got a seven Edmund, or eight point poll yeah, lead. The average um, poll lead is around seven, eight points. The way the boundaries lie, I mean, you sort of can get all sort of stato and geeky about it. But essentially, Labour can, with a vote share of about 34 or 35%, which they really ought to be able to get, um, given that the Lib Dems have collapsed and UKIP are eating into the Tory share and all that. That puts Ed Miliband in Downing Street, whichever way you slice it. And so... The, I mean, he might be in a coalition with the Lib Dems, it might be a tiny majority, he might even be a minority administration. But the fact is, the guy, there's a very strong chance this guy is going to be Prime Minister. And what it, I noticed, and have noticed over a number of weeks and months even, talking to a lot of people in the Labour Party, is they don't believe it'll happen. And they feel really miserable and depressed, and they think it's not going very well. And so the sort of my quest, the question I sort of pose to myself and then to a lot of people on the left and in the Labour Party is, given that your man is about to win and he's going to be Prime Minister, why are you all so glum? Um, and, uh, and the answer was? Well, there are a number of answers. Uh, one is that they, they don't believe the polls, that they think that this it, it's a sort of a lucky dividend from the Tories messing stuff up and it's the sort of midterm thing that happens when a government makes difficult decisions and they don't feel that Labour yet has a sort of a winning proposition. That means people, when it comes down to an actual choice between a Conservative or a Labour government, will go with enthusiasm, embrace heartily the proposition that is being offered to them. And then beyond that, the problem then becomes one of, of Ed himself not having the kind of evangelical capability 
to persuade people that he is in possession of that kind of offer. And that's particularly damaging, I think, because, I mean, that is essentially why the people who backed him backed him. I mean, not a majority, a lot of people didn't back him, a lot of people backed other people to be leader. But, sorry, to, to finish the point, those who really were enthusiastic about Ed were enthusiastic about him because they thought he had a kind of progressive gift of the gab that was going to turn a light on inside Middle England's head and they'd all go, my God, actually what we really want is a social democratic government. Now, clearly, he, he isn't doing that and you've got to start thinking, well, if he isn't doing it, why not? Can he at all? And one of the things you talk about is whether or not the message discipline, this idea we're two years out from an election, is it better just to not give anything away so that you know, the good bits can't be nicked and the bad bits can't be attacked? Is that strategy working? Uh, to, to an extent, actually, it is. Um, in the, certainly the Tories find it immensely frustrating that the, the Labour unity is, is, is immense. It's immense and it's broad, but it's also brittle. And the problem that you have, there's this interesting tension, which I describe in the piece a little bit, which is that the, the sort of... The people around Ed Miliband in a leader's office are always complaining that no one else in the shadow cabinet at the front bench is saying anything exciting or interesting. They're not advancing his great sort of moral capitalism, um, one nation agenda. They say, you know, he has to be his own outrider. He's the most left wing person in his own office. Why is there no one challenging coming up with imaginative ideas? And then you speak to people in the shadow cabinet on the front bench or the back bench. And they say, well, we, we every time we have an idea or want to say something, we submit it. it has to go through the leader's office and it comes back with all the life bleached out of it. A bunch of kind of mundane cliched one nation boilerplate stuck onto it and, stakeholders. It, and it all becomes completely <laughs> turgid and boring and actually you know the leash is too tight for us to do anything and they can't both be right um and so ultimately the answer to your question uh, there is an immense kind of core tactical caution that was baked into ed Miliband when he studied politics at the feet of Gordon Brown. And I think there really is a truly passionate, radical sort of social democrat vision that he wants to get out there. And it's very hard for those two things to run alongside each other uh, inside the same person. And it, ultimately it's the, it's two Ed Millibands competing uh, for to sort of articulate what, what Labour is about at the moment. And Caroline, I wanted to ask you, how do you get the sense that Ed Miliband is regarded on the right? Um, or are they too busy? Mixture. I wonder if they're too busy having a go at Cameron. So if you saw Peter Abel's mm. article about um, Lord Ashcroft this morning saying well, he should I, shut his trap. I think what's actually worrying is that they don't really regard him at all. Is that they are too busy having a go at their own side and sort of worrying about, you know, who's the leader after next, after next? Is it, go, is it Boris? Who is it? Who is it? Uh, the, to really pay much attention to Ed Miliband at all. Whereas Raf's perfectly right with the, the polling as it is. They should be really worried about him. They should be, he should be enemy number one. He should be the barrier between them returning to Downing Street. And for some reason, he just isn't seen as that. Yeah, I'd, I'd concur, just concur with that. To the, I had a very interesting conversation with someone um, very influential in sort of conservative circles just the other day who said to me, sort of asked me as someone from the New Statesman, like, well, is Ed any good? We can't tell. People ask tell. me that all the time. Because we, yeah. we, 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 we look at it from the outside and you think, well, actually, he's held it together. It hasn't fallen apart. He does in subtle ways seems to cause us damage you know i can't make up my mind because it's this weird left party that i don't really understand is he really brilliant or is he rubbish someone please give me the answer to that and no one actually knows the answer to that question the thing i think he needs and this is going to sound awful is he needs that moment that nick clegg had during the tv debates where everyone just sort of abandoned their reasonable thoughts about nick clegg and went oh my god isn't he brilliant 
And we need that to happen for Ed Miliband. The, the problem is, what people will say is he had it, and he had it with that One Nation speech, and that was the moment when and the lobby yeah. went, in particular, which is an important factor, when, oh... We really have underestimated this guy. So that's the conference guy. speech where he spoke yes. off the cuff, didn't have yeah. any notes, which seems an to be hour the of, and it was, and, and that was the moment it was quite fluid. He had some humour, it had a vision, and people, a lot of people said, uh, crikey, actually, this is the Ed Miliband that all his closest allies and friends have always said he is capable of being. He has revealed that this is the man that he knows he can be. And finally, he's persuaded a whole bunch of people, including crucially journalists, that that is, and Tories, that is the person he can be. I was getting calls from people in, in Downing Street and in Lib Dems the next day saying, what have you all been drinking? What's the matter with you people? It was a really boring speech. Help, why is everyone like falling over themselves, falling over Ed Miliband? And at the beginning of this year, people were saying to me, Labour people saying, that's fine, but now we have to put flesh on the bones. Now we have to turn it into a three-dimensional political project that actually galvanises something, feels like a movement. And it's now June, and where is it? Well, on that note, on that question, in fact, I'm going to leave it. Thank you to Raph and Caroline. I'm joined by Alex Hearn, our resident young person's gaming correspondent. Although, actually, I want to be gaming correspondent. You can't be that. Um, To talk about the launch of the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4. It's been the E3 conference in uh, LA this week where the gaming world gathers together in its shiniest um, fedoras and (laughs) World of Warcraft t-shirts to discuss the next generation of consoles. Um, Alex, tell me what happened first of all. Let's go rewind a little bit before this and talk about the PlayStation 4. So the PlayStation 4... um, as we said in our, I think our very first podcast, um, had a slightly underwhelming sort of pre-launch. They didn't show the console at all. Um, they showed the controller and its slightly gimmicky sort of touchscreen and motion controls. Um, and they showed a few games that looked a lot like every other game that we've ever seen, just with more polygons. And they got the guy who made heavy rain up. They got the guy who made heavy rain up to talk about how it had thirty thousand polygons this time, and you could actually see emotion. Which is kind of funny because I've played a lot of Heavy Rain and I enjoyed it, but you could definitely see a lot of emotion yeah. on that. I could see emotion in games that I played in the 90s, which you won't remember, but <laughs> they were great. There was lots of emotion in games. Um, and then obviously we had the Xbox One launch, which managed to, I think, accurately describe it as piss off the entire world of gaming. And Microsoft really, read it. they really screwed the pooch. Yeah. Um, they, they managed to announce, and it, it completely overshadowed everything else. They announced a console which would still be sold on disc-based games, but those discs would not be playable on any other console other than the one that it was first put in without the publisher's permission. You wouldn't be able to resell it without paying a fee. You wouldn't be able to lend it to more than one friend without paying a fee. And to check that you were obeying that, it would have to connect to the internet every 24 hours or it would stop working. So I wrote a piece for The Guardian in which I talked about the fact at Christmas that I brought down the Super Nintendo um, from my my boyfriend and his brother uh, which still, 20 years on, worked absolutely perfectly. The save game for Super Mario World was still there, excellently. Um, and even better than that, you know, we could still we can still play that game. But what's happened here is that your playing of this console, not just the games, but the console itself, is entirely dependent on Microsoft still existing and still giving you access to its check-in authentication mm-hmm. system, right? And who wants to bet that that's still going to happen in 20 years' time? Now, the interesting thing is, it looks really like all that happened is Microsoft did it too soon because if you look at the ps4 as well as you know that the sony is making a big deal making hey while the sun shines and showing off that if you buy a disc on the ps4 you can the way you loan it to a friend is you give it to a friend 
And that's it. It's that simple. There's no authentication, no nothing. But they're very careful to specify that that's about disk-based games. Because, frankly, the future of games isn't disk-based. It is downloadable games. It is streaming games, frankly. It's something like the OnLive, which was a half-assed attempt to play PC games through a box that you just plugged into your computer and they were hosted on someone else's server. This is the future of gaming. And that's going to be look an awful lot like Microsoft's vision for disk-based games. You're not, you can't lend a downloadable game. But this is happening absolutely everywhere, isn't it? It's happening with PC mm -hmm. games, with Steam, and outside of gaming, it's happening with um, Amazon and Kindle. You know, you you know, there's talk about being able to lend Kindle books, but yeah. it's not; they don't exist in the same way that a physical book does. And it definitely happened. I mean, the big pioneer of all this that showed people how profitable it was was iTunes and Apple, right? Exactly. I mean, fundamentally, the idea of ownership of media is dead. That you you don't own media artistic works anymore. You license them on a permanent basis and but this has all come about because of, of of piracy right and torrenting well or it's all come about because it's a land grab that a changed format allows for um you know it it doesn't really help piracy that much because you can still pirate downloadable games in just the same way that you can pirate non-downloadable games well, and the worst does... thing being that, presuming that, then the DRM is cracked. So actually, in some ways, it's a lot more convenient to have a pirated game exactly. than it is to have the one with all the kind of restrictions on it. It's basically, it's, it's, basic, it's something that can be done now. Mm. If You get the sense, if someone could have realistically made a vinyl that would only play on the very first turntable it played on, they would have. Because if you're making vinyls and selling vinyls, that's a really good idea, because you kill the second-hand market and sell more vinyls. But on the plus side, there are places that are taking a more interesting approach to this. So there's been a lot of chatter recently about Netflix and what they did with House of Cards. And effectively, they just pumped out that whole series in one. It was up to you when you decided when you wanted to watch it, right? You could watch, you could sit there and watch, I guess, like 12 hours in right. a row. And this is, this is the advantage of this streaming model, this lack of ownership model. But I mean, yeah, no one complained, but you can't lend House of Cards to a friend. Yeah. You can't sell it secondhand. When you stop paying Netflix for House of Cards, you no longer have House of Cards. This is the new model of media ownership. And it might be quite good for consumers or it might be quite bad for consumers. What that depends on is basically the price and the choice you get for that. But it's different. And it looks a lot more like Microsoft's vision than what Sony was pouncing on. But also the idea is that you, and you're talking about never really owning anything, that there are potentials that things could be taken away. If, for example, I'm thinking about something like um, the Verve's Bittersweet Symphony that was a subject to a copyright claim by the Stones mm -hmm. about a, a, a refrain that was used in it. Now, presumably what would happen in a similar situation is that would get yanked from Spotify, from whatever, while that went on. And if you think you own that, you don't yeah. own that. They can effectively just suck back. Which we saw with the copyright claim based on an unlicensed copy of 1984 being sold on Amazon's Kindle. In massive irony alert. So this copy of 1984 was just, what, deleted without... Yeah, it was... A hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A publisher that specialized in publishing public domain titles, and they just thought 1984 was public domain for some reason. 
and sold it. And then the actual copyright owners of 1984 got in touch and said, that's illegal. And Amazon deleted it straight from people's Kindles without warning them. But I find this really difficult because I was thinking about reviewing books and I get books now to review on Kindle. And if you quote from them, then, and it's something that's like a contentious legal claim or something like that, or you pick someone up on a mistake, and then someone else will go, that's not, well, that's not what the book says. Yeah. It's very hard for you to say, actually, they've sent me an update and this is now, you know, they've taken these pages out, yeah. they've, made, they've had to amend this. And that kind of thing doesn't necessarily happen transparently. This, and, and this now goes back to the very top thing of the internet is not a tool for freedom. It is a tool that is really good at making censorship and control easier. And on that depressing <laughs> note, um, yeah, I'm going to make some joke about the NSA, but I think everyone has done all of them this week. Um, thank you, Alex Hearn. Thank you, Helen. Hello, this is Philip Morn. I'm joined with Caroline Crampton, who has been to see um, a 3D ballet. So we're all used to the idea of 3D movies, but this, this was something else entirely. Tell us about it, Caroline. Yeah, so this was the Marinsky Theatre in St. Petersburg has is trying a new thing where they do a live 3D broadcast. Live 3D itself is not particularly tried or tested, but so it's a simultaneous 3D broadcast from their theatre, a uh, performance of Swan Lake, uh, beamed, initially this was just to a theatre, a, a cinema rather, in London, but I think if it works, the idea is to roll it out around the world. Um, and you wear 3D glasses, as you would when you go to... Uh, any other sort of 3D film and you sit in the cinema and you have this bizarre experience of being able to hear everything that's happening in the theatre in St Petersburg so you can hear people rustling in their seats and you can sort of um they show a bit of footage of the audience to start with so you can see people kind of looking around in space looking at all the gilded gold and all this kind of stuff dressed quite differently dressed from you guys in the cinema from you in the cinema in London um and then the ballet starts and it's um they've done it with the same company that uh, did the 3D on Avatar so it's sort of James Cameron's kind of oh, really? kind of company, and and yeah, so you watch, you put your three D glasses on, and you watch it, the ballet in three D, which was actually less of a disturbing experience than I was expecting. Well, there are two um, you know contemporary phenomenon com- uh, converging here. So it's really uh, increasingly popular to see you know NT live, uh, the Royal Opera House live, yeah. these live events that are broadcast in cinemas. And they in themselves are a strange phenomenon. I mean, people do sometimes dress up actually uh, in their you know their suits and dresses to go to these, these events, which is kind of strange when you're at the Cine World, you know, in Stockton. It's kind of strange thing <laughs> to do. Um, but, uh, you know, fair enough. It's a different experience. And also 3D, which... Some would say, I think, from a, uh, a, a uh, an industry point of view, has been a success, you know, post-Avatar, the kind of post-2003 renaissance. 3D is not an, uh, a new phenomenon at all. It's been around really since the dawn of cinema, the 20s, they were, they were mm, putting out 3D green, films. Old exactly. Thing, yes. um, um, so it's a, it's a kind of those things coming together. Did the 3D lend anything to that sort of going to the theatre live in a cinema? I'm not sure. I'm I'm personally very conflicted on this because mm. I happen to feel that when you go, if you want to go and see a ballet in in the theatre, watching it in not through through this cinema thing, you need to be able to afford the really good seats right. because you need with a ballet you need to be able to see what's going on. It's not like opera where I think you can quite happily sit right up in the gods and have a wonderful time because you can hear all the singing you can see the gestures it's it's fine with ballet you need to be able to see exactly what the people are doing you need to be able to see the set really 
Um, and especially with a ballet like Swan Lake that gets performed so often, mm. to be able to distinguish anything new about a performance or get anything new apart from the last Swan Lake you saw, you need to be able to see what's going on. And that's something that this live broadcast, 3D aside, really, really gives you. Because not only can you see everything, you can, I mean, you can even see the expressions on the dancers' faces, which is not something I've ever seen yeah, when I've gone to a ballet because I can't afford the good tickets. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, but so that's really enjoyable. As for the 3D, it's a different, I don't know much about the technology of it, but it's a different kind of 3D, it feels like, than in films like Avatar or Hugo or something like that. It feels like it's been dialed down a bit. It's, it's subtle. It's not uh, things zooming out of the screen at your face. It's a slight, it gives you a better sense of perspective. So in Swan Lake, when you're seeing all these, all the, the corps de ballet sort of stretched out across the stage, all sort of acting as one big breathing, dancing thing, you feel like you can tell who's closest to you very, very astutely. Well, that's interesting because that's sort of, a tr that's almost reversed, I think, in a lot of um, 3D films. So I recently saw The Great Gatsby in 3D, didn't intend to go to th the 3D showing, but that was the only way we could work it. And that's, film i mean it it's 3d kind of contribution felt you know entirely needless it was that sort of stereoscopic almost like um what it does is sort of it, it makes the background sort of louder you know mm. you you don't i mean one of the it's very important when you, you know on screen to see that someone will be in the foreground and they'll be in focus and then the background will be out of focus and then that will shift and this this works like the human eye you know you can't kind of you have near and far in focus at the same time whereas this 3D kind of almost tries to have the best of both worlds and I just end up coming out with a headache um, mm. that's a bit of a cliche complaint I know a lot of people say about this but you and I both being spectacle uh, wearers yes you have uh, to wear two pairs of glasses you have to wear yeah. two pairs of glasses and this is always going to throw up um, a difficulty so there was no there was nothing if I say special there was nothing kind of bespoke about the 3D it was sort of just an effect layered on I think so yes I mean I'd have to, you'd have to get someone more technical than mm. me to say exactly but that's what it felt like anyway and which meant that it re you really only noticed it in the big group scenes when it was the kind of pas de deux adet Siegfried sort of the famous sort of couple dances you weren't really aware of it at all because you were just watching two people who were yeah. most of the time standing on the same, roughly the same distance away from you. It was when you had the big sort of set piece, the kind of in the third act, the big uh, the court scene where you've got kind of the prince and the princess sitting right at the back watching dancers in front of them. Then you really felt you've got these kind of Cossack dancers like leaping and all the rest of it. That felt really, really good. I felt like that was adding something extra. And in the piece that you wrote about this, you emphasised that this was in some ways bringing ballet to the masses I mean mm. this was presumably a heck of a lot more affordable than going for the uh, the really expensive seats at the Royal Opera yeah well this is very much in a sort of test phase right. I'm not exactly sure how they'll price it but I can't imagine they will price it any more than a standard cinema ticket yeah um perhaps slightly more because a ballet is often a bit longer than a film but I I don't see that it's going to be out of putting people out of pocket in the way that a 70 hundred pound ticket to go to Covent Garden is going yeah. to. Or indeed the cinema, because of course the th the reason the industry is so keen on 3D is that they can charge more for the tickets. You notice that your price is £2 extra than it usually, more than it usually yeah. is. That's because it's a 3D film. So 3D ballet, the future? 3D ballet, I liked it. I'm, I'm less, I think I was more enamoured of the live transmission part. As we mentioned before, this is something that lots of sort of cultural venues have started doing mm. because I liked the view it gave me and I liked the affordability of it. But the 3D... I enjoyed it. I was expecting to find it horrific. I was expecting kind of well-muscled legs to kind of come zooming out past my face and not like it at all. But actually, I, I did feel like it, in some parts, it enhanced the effect. Thanks, Caroline.
Sophie Elmhurst, Features Editor at the New Statesman, and with me here is Tom Calvacaresi, uh, our Deputy Chief Sub-Editor, but also roving art critic, Hi. who in this week's magazine has done a very interesting review of a new Tate Britain show on Patrick Caulfield and Gary Hume. And Tom, you make the point uh, that they're artists of different generations. Why have they been brought together? There's a parallel between them in that they both encapsulate um, a certain era. Um, Gary Hume's um, a 90s Britpop era artist um, and uh, Patrick Caulfield's very much of the swinging 60s. Um, but what really links them is their use of paint and colour, um, which both, both of which uh, are sort of very bright, poppy, um, vivid colour. And also the sort of the type of paint they use. And Gary Hume's always used um, uh, household gloss paint. So there's a kind of flatness and a shininess to his, his painting. Um, Patrick Caulfield also uh, sort of abandoned the use of brush stroke in his art and um, used um, the, the techniques of sign painting. So there's a kind of flatness to both of their work, um, which can at first come across as being slightly superficial. Or, um, or lacking depth, but actually um, what I think about them is that they both have a kind of hidden um, hidden depth to them that's, that kind of comes across when you see their work. That's really interesting. And you also mm. say that they share a, um, well, your line is, it's okay to laugh, there's a humour to, to them both. Yeah, definitely. They're both, you know, they're both immediately quite funny painters. I mean, you go into the, into the cool field and I think especially for our generation. I mean, there's something very dated about them. They're very kind of kitsch, 60s um, interiors. There's a lot of um, uh, sort of interior design furniture, um, pattern, wallpaper that encapsulate a kind of a certain era of the 60s and 70s. Um, Gary Hume, um, they're kind of, it's a darker kind of humour. It's a bit of a, it's a bit more ironic and it's Sort of as befitting someone from from the kind of nineties Brit um, Brit art era, mm. um, but there's definitely they're kind of disturbing. But there's definitely kind of humour about them, and some of their subject matters, and even the titles of the paintings make you laugh. And there's Tony Blackburn, um, who's who's um, rendered as a big purpley smudge on the, <laughs> on the canvas. Um, there's a, there's a quite a few that um, incorporate images of Kate Moss and Michael Jackson's nose. Um, there's yeah, there's something kind of there's a savagery about them as well, but there's definitely they're definitely funny. Yeah, I mean you you say there is uh, to an extent in the in the Caulfield, especially maybe a sort of satir a satirical element, a sort of satire on consumer culture. What's he exploring? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's the the thing about his his canvases. They're they're mainly still lives, but there's also a sense of there's a very much a sort of human imprint in them. But then there's no people actually in the paintings. There's a kind of sense of um, a sort of emptiness in a way that the, the people have just left the room that you know there's mm. all that we're seeing of these people is the objects and the, the interiors that they've um, created or collected and um, there's a kind of slight sadness about them like there's you know there'll be a, a table set up for dinner and there'll be a, ca a lit candle or, or kind of half empty glass but no sign of the of the, um, the diners and so there's a sort of sense that you know there is a kind of maybe a slight, slight satire on, on mm. sort of consumer culture. Or sort of soullessness, or something. Yeah. yeah, but also there's a celebratory quality to them as well. That they're kind of there's an enjoyment and a, you know, there's something 
they, they almost come out of kind of design and advertising as well. Some of the, mm. the elements of them, there's, a, there's an enjoyment of that whole um, you know, world of design and, and interiors. And finally, it, it's unfair probably to pick a winner, mm. but mm. pairing the artist as the Dave Britton has done almost mm. invites it. And you seem to come down on the side of Gary Hume, or at least you, you say that his portraits are the, the more biting. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I love both of them actually. Um, I've always been, I've always been quite a Caulfield fan actually. After seeing him at a, an exhibition that I thought was more recent than it was, it was actually back in nineteen ninety nine. Um, but um, and I kind of had dismissed Gary Hume a bit before as not being as interesting. But actually, after the, these shows, I think I have kind of reevaluated Gary Hume, and I do find his work. Maybe more powerful, yeah. So the show's on until the 1st of September. Do check it out. Today's podcast was presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Raphael Bear, Tom Calvo Caressi, Caroline Crampton, Sophie Elmhurst, Alex Hearn, and Philip Maud. It was produced by Caroline Crampton, edited by Philip Maud, and our theme music was taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment and telecommunications companies and provide strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts.